Morning. I'd like to start off by sharing a, a personal story. And I'd just like to tell you that um, I had to ask Naomi's permission to be able to share this story. And I sort of kind of built this lesson around this, this story. It's built around scripture, but she almost told me no. And so she just asked me that if I share this story about her, that we just keep it within the family here. So about five or six months ago, Naomi's my daughter, she's, she's nine years old. About five or six months ago, she reached this point in her life where she came to the realization that she's mortal. Right, that one day she is going to die. Right? Her heart's going to stop beating. And so this realization was weighing heavy on her heart. And it caused her to question a lot of things. Yeah. And my wife and I, Bonnie, were thankful for this trial. Right, because it gave us the opportunity to point her to Christ, to show her in the scriptures what Jesus said. And so she was constantly thinking about death. And I'll never forget, about three months ago, I was getting ready to go on a business trip. And we were sitting around outside around our fire pit, and I was, I was talking to Naomi, and I said, you know, Naomi, I'm going away on this trip. I'm going to be back in four days. And I want you to know I'm going to miss you, and I love you. She looks at me in the eyes, and she goes... You don't know that you're going to be back in four days. You could die. You could die easily and I could never see you again. Right? And she was worried about when I go to sleep, am I going to wake up, right? And so one night, maybe about a month and a half ago, I, Bonnie and I had put our kids to bed, put Naomi to bed, and I'm working in the office on work. And she's in the bedroom next door. And she comes into my office and tears are streaming down her face. I go, Naomi, what's wrong? She goes, Dad, I don't know if I'm going to make it to heaven. I don't know that when I die, I'm going to be there with Jesus. How do I know? How do I know that I know I'm going to be in heaven? Because I don't think I'm going to be there. And I sat her in my lap and I, and I shared with her. And so I ask you this question this morning. The same question that my nine-year-old daughter asked me. How do you know that you know that you're saved? Deep down. How do you know that your picture is in the family photo album of God? Right? How do you know that you're a part of his family? Is it based on an emotional experience that you had? Maybe when you're before the altar bowing your head? Is it based on a feeling of closeness that you have with Jesus? Or is it based on your ability to obey the rules? And to keep God's commands? Or maybe do you doubt that you're saved? 
Because maybe sometimes you lack a sense of closeness to our Father. What is it? Is assurance of salvation possible? Now at the time when John was writing 1 John, he was an older man. Right, and he was writing a letter as a letter you would write to your children. Right, he was like this loving paternal father. And at the time he was writing this letter, there was this group of people called the Gnostics. And these were people who claimed to be Christians. And they believed that Jesus and the Christ were two separate things. Right, so they, they professed to be believers. But they believed that while Jesus was on earth, the Christ was with him. But before he was sacrificed, the Christ... God had left him. They believed the material things were evil, but spiritual things were good. And so that while you were in your flesh, you could sin all the while, and it didn't matter, because that was your physical side. But your spirit, your spirit was pure and would rise to heaven. So in 1 John chapter 2, 3 through 6, John is basically giving a self-diagnostic test. What is the evidence of a true faith in Jesus? So turn with me to 1 John 2, 3 through 6, and we'll read through it, and then we'll, we'll go through this verse by verse. So he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now notice in this section of scripture, he doesn't say you'll know that you know him by your profession of faith. You don't have assurance by saying a prayer. Right? In verse 3, he talks about keeping his commandments. In verse 5, he talks about keeping his word. In verse 6, he talks about walking as Jesus walked. So what does it mean in verse 3 when he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The greatest commandments that Jesus gave is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I can't be perfectly obedient to that. I fail in keeping those two commandments continually. So does that mean I'm not a Christian? John's not referring to somebody here who's perfectly able to keep his commandments. Right? Because John says earlier, if we say that we have not sinned, then we're a liar. But he's basically saying that if you're a follower of Christ, you're generally characterized as somebody who has the desire to keep God's commandments. Now, we need to be very careful here. If we view being able to keep God's commandments as a way to salvation, we put a yoke around our neck because we can never be perfectly obedient. And that yoke is going to be so heavy that it's going to crush you. It's completely opposite with our Father. You see the yoke of Jesus 
while demanding es is easy. Es fácil. Because it's from the one who is gentle viene and lowly in heart. Es... Turn with me to Matthew 11, Vamos a Mateo, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for my souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, obedience to God's law is not something that crushes you. A follower of Christ understands that Jesus is a loving father and his commands are good and they're a protection for us. So I'm a father of four. And as a father, and the way we run our household is we require obedience of our children. Right, we lay out certain rules and we require our children to comply with certain things. And we do that because we love them. Because it's the best thing for them. It creates a circle of protection around them when they're being obedient to us and they're following our rules. The same is true with Christ. Now, Travis, my son, I didn't ask his permission for this, by the way, but I don't think he'll care. He does weird things. Right, and I, I've been in the living room, I'll look over and he'll be licking something off of the floor. Right? And you wonder, why are you licking food off of the floor? Right, and oftentimes I'll tell him, Travis, you know you're not allowed to lick food off of the floor. Right, that's a rule that we have, no licking food off the floor. It's horrible that I have to create that rule, but I do. The same with God. He sees us licking food off of the floor and he's telling us, please don't do that. Don't lick food off of the floor. In the same way, our obedience is a response to God's love. As I mentioned earlier, there were some who claimed to be Christians but were willfully disobedient. They didn't have this desire in their hearts to obey God because they said, God's grace is sufficient. Why do I need to try to be obedient? I have this, this flesh that's evil. Jesus paid the price. I can go forth and sin. And I think a lot of times we cheapen grace because we don't understand the cost of grace. I'd like to read an excerpt from this book, The Grace and Truth Paradox, to help illustrate the cost of grace. And it's talking about Jesus. Hounded by the Pharisees, betrayed by a friend, forsaken by his disciples, brutalized by police, beaten by his inquisitors, led in disgrace to a rigged trial. Arrogant men. I'm just overwhelmed by God's grace. Arrogant men sitting in judgment over him, crowning him with thorns mocking and disdaining him, beating him without mercy, nailing him to the cross, worst of tortures, stretched out between thieves, miserably thirsty, utterly forsaken by his father for the first time. The picture of complete aloneness, hell on earth, not just one man's hell, but the hell of billions. At any moment in a millisecond, 
He could have called legions of angels to deliver him and destroy his enemies like that. Instead, he bears the forever scars of sin, rebellion, mockery, and hatred, the scars of God, God's grace. The scars of God's grace. You see, the grace that we get to freely enjoy, this grace that we get to experience that's so wonderful, it costs so much. It costs so much. And when we understand that grace came with a great cost, we have the desire to be obedient to Christ and to follow His commands because that grace was not cheap. We should live a life that's in awe of Jesus. Live a life worthy of what He did for us on the cross. And He did it for the joy that was set before Him. Jesus bears those scars of grace for you, John. For you, Ernesto. For you, Nicole. For everyone here. We need to recognize that. And so I ask you this morning, do you have the desire in your heart to be obedient? I'm not talking about walking perfectly. I'm not talking about keeping this high set of rules. But is there a desire in your heart to be obedient to Jesus? Okay, now let's move on to verses 4 through 5. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Now the term here when John is saying, whoever says, I know him, I know him, it means having an intimate relationship with him, right? To know somebody, to know them more than just as an acquaintance. But to know who they are, to have fellowship with them. Right? There are some that say, I know him. I love Jesus. But they're liars. What a sad thing. Because they do not obey God. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 7, verse 21. This is Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now the doubling of one's name. Notice how they say, Lord, Lord. And then in 22 it says, Lord, Lord. That was a connotation of intimacy when you doubled one's name. These are people who thought they had an intimate relationship with Jesus. But in the end, he says, I never knew you. Right? It's not claims of feelings of intimacy that matter. Or is it good works? These are people that were doing miraculous things in the name of Jesus. Feelings can deceive. 
You see, obedience and the love of God are inseparably linked. The true believer has both. Okay, verse 6. John goes on to say, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Right? Our life, Jesus' life should be the pattern for our life. And what is it that Jesus embodied? When he was walking on this earth, that we should also embody. Okay, he says in, in John 1.14, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. Not half grace, not half truth. 100% grace, 100% truth. And the interesting thing about Jesus is most sinners loved being around Jesus. Sinners invited him into their home, the God of the universe. They invited him to their parties. They would rip open thatched roofs and lower their friends down to see him. Sinners loved Jesus. Although he spoke the truth, he did it with grace. A perfect, a great example in scripture of God demonstrating both grace and truth is found in John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, Let him who is without sin, you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one. Beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now and sin no more. Now there was no room for this woman to say that she didn't sin. She was caught in the actual act of adultery by the Pharisees. It wasn't from hearsay. She was caught in the actual act. And under the law, she deserved death. Back then, if you're a woman and you were caught in adultery, you were to be stoned. And what that meant for a woman is they would bury you so your head would show. And they would hurl stones at your head until you died. That's what the law demanded. Think of the fear that that woman must have felt. 
She's with these Pharisees and scribes, keepers of the law, men that appeared to be so holy on the outside, men that could obey the rules. They were forcing this truth down this woman's throat, killing her with the truth. And it was true. She deserved to be killed. How did Christ deal with her? Christ could have destroyed this woman. He could have killed her. 100% grace, 100% truth. He says, neither do I condemn you. He doesn't condemn her. He gives her grace. And he speaks the truth to her. He says to her, and from and now on, sin no more. Think of how that woman must have felt. I'd like to read you a story from the... I just got this book like two days ago, and it's, it's, it's amazing, but... Um, it's a modern-day story of the prodigal son, and I think it helps demonstrate grace and truth in today's terms. Philip Yancey tells a modern-day version of the prodigal son about a girl with a nose ring and an attitude. She rebels against her parents, runs away, and because becomes a drug-addicted prostitute in Detroit. The months go by. She sees her face on a milk carton, but never bothers to tell her family that she's alive. Years later, she gets sick and desperate. Her pimp throws her out on the street. All other alternatives exhausted. She calls home. She leaves a... Sorry. Story. She leaves a message on the answering machine. Gets on a Greyhound. Shows up at the bus station. Figuring she'll scrounge a ride to her old house. She steps off the bus. She finds herself greeted by 40 brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, cousins, grandparents, and her parents. All wearing party hats. With a huge banner stretched out saying welcome home before she can finish saying I'm sorry her father murmurs hush sweetheart we'll talk later we've got to get you home to the party there's a banquet waiting for you such abundant grace almost makes those parents look foolish They look foolish to the world. Their daughter had been gone. She'd been a prostitute, doing drugs, completely disobeying them. She comes back and they're with their arms open, with party hats on, embracing her. Her parents kept a high standard. They asked her to obey the rules. But they demonstrated both grace and truth. And as followers of Christ, we too are to demonstrate both this amazing grace and truth. Not lowering the bar, not lowering the standard, keeping the bar high, and keeping our grace high as well. Now I'd like to come back to the story I shared with Naomi. When she was on my lap and asking me, 
how do I know that I know I'm going to get to heaven? Now, what I told her then is different than what I'm going to go back and tell her now. You see, I told her as she was sitting on my lap, I said, Naomi, you know that you're, no, you know you're a Christian by praying a prayer, by inviting Jesus into your heart and accepting his sacrifice for your sins. Now, I believe that when people pray that prayer and they believe it, People are saved. There's nothing you can do to earn God's grace. But if you don't demonstrate the fruit, if you don't demonstrate a desire for obedience, if you don't demonstrate a desire to know His Word and to pattern your life after God, it doesn't match up to what John is saying is evidence of being a Christian. I would say to her now, you see the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price. It's something that's so valuable that you'll sell everything you have to get it. The kingdom of heaven is like finding this treasure in a field that you know it's worth more than anything you have. That you go out and sell everything you have to go and buy that field. You know that you know by your desire to be obedient to God, your desire to keep His word, and your desire to pattern your life after Him. And you're going to stumble. You're going to fall. You're going to mess up, but you're going to get back up and keep going. Now, if you're somebody who believes that you're a Christian, and you've never sacrificed for Jesus. You don't have a desire to be obedient or to know his word. Ask God to open your eyes. Ask him to reveal to you whether you're truly a follower of Jesus or not. Because the worst thing would to be like those people who said, Lord, Lord, I knew you. And then at the end of your life, when all is said and done, Jesus says to you, I never knew you. God's grace is a free gift. There's nothing we can do to earn his favor or salvation. You see, I understand better now after this week why Britt's been talking so much about sin. And that's because if there's anything good in us, if there's anything that's worthy, if there's anything we think we can hang our hat on, then maybe Christ didn't really have to go through everything that he went through. Maybe he didn't have to pay this tremendous price. And so there's really only one requirement for enjoying God's grace. It's being broken and knowing it. And knowing that you're broken. God's grace is a free gift. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your gift of free grace, Lord. God, for those of us who may don't know you, Lord, I pray that you'll change hearts, Father. Give us a desire to follow you, Lord. 
deseo para Give us a desire to be obedient, Lord. Out of a response of love, Father. Out of a response for what you've done for us, Lord Jesus. God, I thank you so much for this church, Lord. I just pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to us, Father. Help us to consider the things, Lord, that we've heard this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.